Hello and welcome to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio. On this week's episode, we will be diving into the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. 29-year-old Sherry Rasmussen was found dead in her home on February 24th, 1986. It would take 23 years before her killer was brought to justice. And when the murderer was finally caught, it shocked some while others knew it all along. Keep doing whatever you're doing and hang out with me while I talk true crime. ready to talk cold case because this is a solved cold case which means you know it interests me as soon as I heard it. I love a good solved cold case. I just love it and with the never-ending advancements in technology I think we can expect to see more and more cold cases being solved per year. It cannot be easy being a cold case detective. That is that's a tough gig. I couldn't imagine being handed a file from 10, 20, 30 years ago and being told, hey, um, can you solve this? <laughs> even though the witnesses can't accurately recall what happened and some people may not even be around to talk to anymore. And oh yeah, the crime scene has long been cleaned up. Like <laughs> what the fuck? Where do you even start? You know what? Let's talk about how this case was cracked and how the murder was close to police the entire time the entire time the when the murder happened and when it was being investigated and then 23 years later when the murderer was brought to justice this is crazy the murderer was as close as being in the office across the hall this case takes place in Van Nuys, California in 1986. Sherry Rassiman and John Rutten, they were young in love and recently married three months previous. The two met in 1984 and were married and living together by 1986. It was a fast-moving relationship, but they were head over heels for each other. They had a very strong connection and they were married within two years of meeting each other. The two met one summer's night at a party, and John, he could not resist Sherry. Sherry being highly intelligent, motivated, and gorgeous, the two, they hit it off. Sherry, she actually started university when she was only 16 years old. 16. I found that very impressive, and that meant by the time she was in her 20s, when most people are you know, still trying to figure out what they want to do. She was already the director of nursing at a medical center and teaching classes internationally about critical care nursing. She is, she's like a Doogie Hauser, Doogie Hauser of nursing. I'm in my 30s and I'm still trying to figure it out. So to me, this was just something I thought very admirable. And uh, not only that, but nursing it, it must be such a tough job. And she was doing this, you know, learning it and doing it at, and thriving at it at such a young age. It's just very impressive. I'd imagine her passion for healthcare had something to do with her father being a dentist and her mother had actually run her, her father's dental practice. So I'm sure she just had endless support on her journey um, into getting where she was at in nursing. John, he had recently graduated from university in 1982 and he was a mechanical engineer, which, I mean, he's no dummy. You know, they were, they were, two, they were, they were a couple of smart peas in a pod, I guess. The two... They were just smart, 
and beautiful. They were just an amazing couple. And they both just had buckets of ambition. The pair married on November 23rd, 1985. Three months later, Sherry was found by her husband in her pajamas, dead on the living room floor. She had been shot three times in the chest. The morning of February 24th, 1986 was like any Monday morning, except that morning, Sherry, she was going to call in sick to work because she had a presentation she didn't really want to do. I guess she also did motivational presentations as part of her job as director of nursing, which is, (laughs) I found it kind of ironic she wasn't feeling motivated to give a motivational speech. Is that irony? Am I using that correctly? So anyways, she she did have a bit of uh, aerobics injury actually from the day before. I mean, it was nothing to really stop her, but she was going to use that as an, an excuse to call in sick. Even though she is, she's usually the first one up and out of the house during the day, like in the morning, she goes to work. She's usually out first, but that day she wasn't going to go. So John was the first one to leave for work. We know from a neighbor that something was amiss by 9.45 that morning as they said they noticed Sherry and John's garage door was left open, but the neighbor didn't see any vehicle in the garage and the neighbor thought it was odd or at least out of character for them to leave that door open when they were gone, like when they were both gone. By 10 a.m., John, he had tried to call Sherry at home, but she never answered and so he tried again a few more times during the day and not once did Sherry pick up. By lunchtime, two men working in the area found a handbag on the ground and they gave it to one of the neighbors and that bag actually belonged to Sherry. There was also a maid working in one of the apartments and she tells police she is sure she heard arguing or fighting or like and something being broken around 1230 that same afternoon. John, he returns home that evening from work and he's like, what the fuck? The garage door is open and my wife's car is gone. Sherry had a BMW that John had gifted her when they got engaged and that car wasn't there, but there was broken glass in the driveway. And I'm sure he was thinking like, where the hell did this broken glass come from? Because it was, you know, he couldn't see anything around him that was broken and he couldn't piece it together of what it once was. It was just shattered glass. As soon as he pulls in his driveway, he knew something was weird because she would have told him if she had changed her mind and went to work or if she went anywhere, but he hadn't heard from Sherry all day. Couldn't get a hold of her. Uh, Before we go any further, first, can we just take a moment to appreciate that John gifted Sherry a nice car as an engagement present? I thought that was a very nice engagement present. And to be honest, I had no idea spouses gave each other engagement gifts, but it's a nice touch. It's a nice touch. Okay, so John, he is, he's standing in his driveway. He sees this broken glass. He sees his wife's car is gone. He sees the garage doors open. And he's feeling weird about this situation. So he goes inside and he explores this further. And he goes inside the home. In the home, he finds a brutal, bloody struggle had taken place. And amongst the mess was Sherry lying face up on her back, arms overhead, dead in a pool of blood. Absolutely horrific. Just the worst thing you could ever imagine walking into when you get home. Just brutal horrific terrible um the couple they had an alarm system which had a panic button built in and beside that button was a bloody handprint as if sherry had tried desperately to alert for help 
a vase had been smashed and was believed to be smashed over Sherry's head uh, before she was shot. Furniture had been turned over, speakers ripped off the walls, electronics appeared to be moved as if someone was going to take them but didn't. A drawer had been pulled out, a blanket had been used as a silencer, and Sherry had been shot three times at close range with 38 caliber bullets. She also had a bite mark on her inner left forearm. Upstairs, the sliding glass doors were smashed and the shards had fallen into the driveway. Whatever happened in that home was brutal, and Sherry had the defensive marks all over her face and arms to prove it. Sherry, she put up a fight, but she was unarmed and she was caught off guard. Unfortunately, she couldn't get away from whoever came into her home that morning. Police, they come to investigate. Okay, John calls 911. He sees this. He's like, oh, he freaks out, calls 911. Police come to investigate and they come up with a theory. And the theory is that it's a random attack because Sherry surprised the burglars mid-burgle. So people, it was just like a random house to, to burgle that day. And police are thinking that it was two men that broke into the home. Although I didn't read anything about uh, anything about forced entry. So, and, you know, that's kind of an important note because that could mean that she knew the person or the person had a key or, you know what I mean? Like forced entry, if you're looking at a, a burglary or a robbery, you, you most of the time you're going to see forced entry and there was no forced entry scene here. So the police believe that these burglars broke in two men and as they're looking around for goods to steal, Sherry caught them and that's when the struggle took place. Sherry was shot and killed during the struggle. Then the burglars stole her BMW to get away quickly and left all the electronics. Like they just left everything. They abandoned their their robbery and they just took off. This is when DNA analysis was still in early days, but a swab of that bite mark was taken on Sherry's arm and it was stored in evidence. And this this is what blows this case up 23 years later and also blows police's theory out of the water because this was not a random attack. I was actually really relieved to hear they swapped that bite mark. Uh, that's very forward thinking on the police's part, even though DNA analysis wasn't at the point that they could really do anything with it. So, you know, it was very forward thinking of them to do that. Oh, maybe in the future this can help us. Uh, but also, I'm not sure how far along forensic odontology was at this point. It was used in the in Ted Bundy's trial, which was in the late 70s, and police did use a forensic odontologist for that. But if I'm being honest, I personally don't think that method is completely concrete. It's not concrete enough. Uh, and I've even talked to my dentist about this before, and he agrees. Basically, the the method that I'm kind of skeptical about is when a body is found with a bite mark on them they can bring in a forensic odontologist to make a mold of this bite mark and then try to match it to suspects teeth so I I went to my dentist and we actually <laughs> brand new dentist I go in there we start talking he wasn't even weirded out by me asking these like weird questions so we started talking about forensic odontology and my dentist thinks that unless there is like a unique identifier, like a crooked front tooth, let's say, or a missing tooth or, or something like that from the biter, then the bite mark is going to be almost impossible, if not impossible, to be able to tell who the bite mark came from. And as far as I know, police, they didn't try to match the bite mark 
that was found on Sherry, like, like they would a fingerprint because that can, it can just go so wrong and possibly lead to a wrongful imprisonment, which is the last thing you want. It's, it's not an exact science in my opinion. So I was just glad to hear police didn't waste time on that because it would have led nowhere at best. At best, that's going to take them nowhere. The DNA left on that bite mark though. They did swap that. They did take that and they put it in a test tube and they sealed it away. And we're going to hear more about that because 18 years later, it comes back. So another thing that was missing from the home was John and Sherry's marriage license, which why the fuck would burglars want that? Why that doesn't make any sense. Only two things are missing and police are calling this a robbery. And one of those things is a very odd thing for any burglar to take I mean the car okay yeah that makes sense but a marriage license that's weird but police they had they had their mind set on what had happened and they didn't bother to go down any other avenues even though Sherry's parents her father specifically gave them and he didn't give them the name but he gave them a description of a person who had motive and police were like, nah, we're not going to look into that. Bye. Frankly, it's just fucking terrible police work. That is bad police work. You got to follow up all the leads. Even just do it. I just, I couldn't believe that when I heard that. I was like, okay, this seems, this seems sus. And I don't, to be honest with you, might not have been all chalked up to bad police work. Okay. I'm getting ahead of myself. It gets even worse though because evidence starts going missing. First, before I get into the investigation, I want to kind of rewind this story and go back to when John was in university, before he met Sherry, because this is when he met a woman named Stephanie Lazarus. John and Stephanie met while um, he was studying uh, mechanical engineering, and she was studying political science. They're both very sporty spice. Oh my, I'm wearing my Spice Girl shirt right now. Okay, so they're both very sporty spice, and there must have been some kind of attraction there because they hooked up a few times after after they graduated. Uh, so every every source was making that a point. I don't know why, but they they met when they were studying, but it wasn't until after they graduated that they hooked up a few times. And by a few times, I mean 20 or 30 times. So quite a lot of few times. <laughs> uh, and that was between 1981 and 1984. But they were never exclusive with each other. So I'm not really sure what was going on there. Stephanie and John, they never dated. And I'm not sure what their relationship was like or if John only liked sleeping with Stephanie and nothing more about her. Uh, I don't know. I get the feeling she was obsessed with him. And I also get the feeling she's unstable. So I mean, that also could have been why. But as we see these traits of hers didn't stop John from having sex with Stephanie even when he was engaged to Sherry. Stephanie during this time of all the tryst her and John were having was also becoming a what? A police officer for the LAPD. That's right, she was a police officer. When John and Sherry began dating in 1984, Stephanie had no idea. And that year for John's 25th birthday, she threw him a surprise party. And guess who John was with when he walked into this unsuspected birthday party? Yes, Sherry. Stephanie was not pleased with this. She had no idea he was in a committed relationship. And things only got more weird 
when she discovered they were engaged. First of all, why is she throwing him a surprise party if she doesn't even know that he's in a committed relationship? Like, how did she even make that work? Because clearly they're not close enough in each other's lives where, where they know big things. So I don't know. That was just very strange to me. Another strange thing. So when <laughs> when Stephanie found out he was in this committed relationship, she wrote John's mother a letter. A letter. I was like, okay, let's hear what this letter said. And this letter was telling John's mother how she loves John, like how Stephanie loves John, and how she is so upset about the news of him marrying Sherry because she had heard about the engagement at this point. She wrote this to John's mother in August of 1985, the year John and Sherry got married. I'm, I am, yeah, that's crazy. She, quote, I'll read you a quote from it. Quote, I'm really in love with John, and this past year has really torn me up, unquote. What the hell, Stephanie? Why are you writing to his mother? Did she wh- <laughs> Did she think his mother would talk to him and be like, hey, don't marry Sherry, marry this woman you um, have never even dated and writes me weird letters about being in love with you? Just, you know, marry that girl. I just do not understand why Stephanie would would write to John's mother. That's just so bizarre to me. So bizarre. Also, imagine John's face when he finds out. Like, I'd imagine he was very put off by that gesture. Maybe even a little scared. Uh, I don't know. When he found that out, I don't know. Another time before John and Sherry's wedding, Stephanie called John and begged him to come over. She was crying and she's like, come over and like talk to me or like, I don't know exactly what she said um, to get him over there. But I'd imagine she was saying how hurt she was and that she just needs to see him to talk to him about letting go of him or something. But either way, when he got to her apartment, she told him how much she loved him and that she loves him more than Sherry loves him which that is terrifying and she's crying and she's just yeah really over the top about um him in this committed relationship and that just sounds totally scary but whatever else she said I am not sure how she did this but before the night was over the two ended up having sex this was later described as closure sex so uh, John talks about this later saying that uh, Stephanie wanted closure. So maybe she kind of manipulated him into this saying, well, if we just have sex one more time, you know, it's, it's just like closure for me. And I feel like I've heard that term on a sitcom somewhere before and I, I couldn't pin it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I've heard it somewhere. Apparently this was the last time John had sex with Stephanie while Sherry was alive. <sighs> yeah. Uh, so this was when John and Sherry, they were engaged and the wedding, it had not happened yet. But after John and Stephanie had this closure sex, uh, it was apparent Stephanie had no closure because she went to Sherry's office at the hospital, barged into Sherry's office and told her that she loves John and that she's his girlfriend, not Sherry. I, I believe an exact quote from that day is Stephanie saying, quote, if I can't have John, then no one can, unquote. Uh, oh, and she also said, quote, when your marriage falls apart, I will be there to pick up the pieces, unquote. Yikes. Okay, so that happened. Uh, yeah, that happened. John, he must have explained that encounter away and 
and said he and Stephanie were not in a relationship and that they're just friends. I have no idea how he smoothed that over, but somehow he did. Um, And it's not over yet though. So one day, and I think this actually happened before Stephanie went to Sherry's office. So I think this incident happened before that. Stephanie drops into John and Sherry's home one day completely unannounced with her skis. Yes, you heard me correctly. Crazy Stephanie shows up with her skis and is like, hey, John, you need to wax my skis. And Sherry's thinking, what the fuck is this? Like, what the hell is going on? And John, he says, okay, we'll do, Stephanie. And she just leaves the skis there for John to wax. And he waxes them. I, <laughs> I just, I don't know what's going on here. So what kind of, is this like a weird power move? uh that stephanie's doing here like i can still make john do things for me or something like i don't i am really not sure but it's just the whole thing is just so strange a few days go by and the skis are waxed of course john waxes them the skis are at john and sherry's john he leaves for work and guess who pops in to get her skis unannounced that's right stephanie stephanie shows up unannounced in full police uniform gun and all this time just to pick up her skis sherry was like here's your skis and uh please don't come around my home anymore and i'd imagine stephanie did not like hearing that well after that sherry started feeling like she was being followed and watched whenever she left her house as if someone was dressing up in disguises and watching her grocery shop and go to the gym which is just fucking creepy How do we all know this? Well, Sherry would call her parents um, and talk to them, her father specifically, and talk to them about John's lady cop ex-girlfriend. She never said the name Stephanie Lazarus, but she did refer to her as uh, John's lady cop ex-girlfriend. So I'd say that describes Stephanie pretty well. After Sherry's murder, her father Nell, he told police all about these phone calls um, and the concerns that Sherry had over this lady cop ex-girlfriend. So he was like, these are conversations I've had with my daughter and this has happened and this has been happening quite recently. Um, And what did police do about this? You ask, I ask, we ask, we all ask, not a damn thing. They didn't even look into it. Actually, they told Sherry's father, he watches too many police movies, too many police movies, too many police shows, something like that. So not only did they not even pretend to be concerned, but they gaslit the fuck out of him. I will say, though, that police did ask John about what Sherry's father was saying, trying to, like, back up these um, lady cop stories. And for some reason, John denied there ever having been any conflict between Sherry and Stephanie or his lady cop ex-girlfriend another thing i found strange is that when police asked john if he knew of anyone sherry may have been having problems with he said no one no one really john you can't think of a single person that might hate your wife for any reason i personally believe john was scared of stephanie and that's why he wouldn't point his finger at her um later he says he really didn't think she could have anything to do with this so who knows who knows what's happening here? Who knows if Stephanie has said things to John in private that could scare him or motivate him into not calling her out for things? Or maybe he didn't think she was capable of murdering Sherry. Either way, he did not push police to look at Stephanie as a suspect. Then, come to find out, John actually had sex with Stephanie three years after Sherry was murdered in 1989. 
did he really just have no idea? Could he really not piece this together? So it, it comes out later that they met up in Hawaii for scuba diving. And before John did this, he actually called police and asked them, you don't think Stephanie had anything to do with my wife's murder, do you? And the police were like, nah. And John was like, oh, okay, sweet. And then met her in Hawaii and had sex with her. (laughs) So he's, why would he call police and ask that? Like what was going through his mind? What were the steps? What was his thought process there, I wonder? He's like, "Mm, I could meet her in Hawaii, but did she murder my wife? Well, maybe I'll just call the police and see if anything came up in the investigation. Even if you have to call police and be like, do you think this person murdered my partner? And they're like, um, no. I still don't think that's someone you should meet up with in Hawaii and go scuba diving with and then have sex with. I don't know. Call me crazy, but I, I don't know. I guess still Stephanie, though, she couldn't rope John into any kind of relationship because he packed up and he moved away after the murder and he eventually remarried. Stephanie, she married as well. So she married another police officer and they adopted a child together. Uh, They both seemed to go their separate ways and eventually Stephanie must have just left John alone. As the years went by, both her and her husband rose through the ranks and became detectives. It seemed like police investigating Sherry's murder were being very narrow-minded and so hell-bent on the robbery theory that they just ran with that and they never looked back. John, he was cleared immediately. He, they, he they, you know, there was no life insurance policy there. Sherry and his financial situation was good. Their marriage seemed to be good. They'd only been married three months. There was no reason to believe he had anything to do with the murder and his alibi was airtight and he was he was grieving. Like everybody who interviewed him, who talked to him, who knew him at the time, they were like, yeah, he was grieving. He was very broken up about this. Stephanie, well, being a member of the police force, she was never looked at. Let's talk about the evidence collected. Extensive photos were taken and the scene was documented very well, but there were interviews, both written and recorded, that mentioned this lady cop ex-girlfriend Sherry's father was talking about. And then again, the detective and John spoke about it. So there was record, there was multiple records of this. Those records, those files, they went missing. They just vanished. Every other reported interview was there, but not those ones. Where did those go? And who would have access to take those from evidence? Hmm. If I were to take a stab in the dark, just a wild stab in the dark, I'd have to guess someone who works in the police department. But why would someone in the police department not want a description of them on file? Hmm. Only one file contained Stephanie's name, and it was from 1987, over a year after the murder. And it read that John had called police and verified that Stephanie was his ex-girlfriend and a police officer Sherry's father had spoke about. Uh, So it's possible Stephanie had no idea that that was on record. She may not have known that that went into the file. One week after Sherry was murdered, her stolen BMW was recovered and it was found uh, still in the area of, of where it was stolen from, where they lived. The car was unlocked, keys were in the ignition, as if whoever stole it just jumped out and ran away. Inside the car was a strand of brown hair, fingerprints, and some blood. But nothing ever happened with that evidence. Eventually, this case stalled out and police 
pushed it to the side. But Sherry's father, he would not stop his search for the monster who killed his daughter. He would call the police all the time just to be put on hold and never spoken to. Seven years after the murder, DNA testing was evolving and he even requested the DNA samples be tested and he found a lab to test them and he even offered the $10,000 to pay for it personally. As police said, they didn't have it in their budget to pay for the DNA testing and still nothing happened. Oh, well, actually something did happen. Um, Yeah. Shortly after Sherry's father requested to test the DNA samples, the DNA evidence went missing. Yep. Just gone. Just vaporized. Evidently, Detective Phil Morritt went to the coroner's office and checked all the DNA evidence for Sherry's case out on October 11th, 1993. Guess what? That evidence never seen again. And he also doesn't recall doing this. He's like, no, I don't recall ever checking that evidence out. So what the dodgy fuckery is this shit? Not everything disappeared though. And this is where it gets exciting. One piece of evidence sat idle in the coroner's freezer for over 18 years preserving it it sat there and waited and since it was lost nobody knew where it was it was almost like it hid itself and waited for justice that piece of evidence was the dna swab taken from the bite mark on sherry's arm the year is now 2001 cold case files they're being dug up dna testing has evolved and los angeles has thousands of unsolved murders some with really good dna evidence that was never tested and in 2004 sherry's case ends up getting pulled to the top and the light of day hits this file for the first time in a very very long time years and years and years this file has been dark and dormant but on this day Jennifer Francis dusts it off and cracks it open. She's reading through it and she's like, what the fuck? This is really odd. This doesn't make sense. Let me dig my teeth into this because something, it ain't right. But remember, there is no mention of this lady cop crazy ex-girlfriend anywhere in these files. Those have all been removed. But wait, she sees there should be a DNA sample in evidence that was pulled from a bite mark. And she wants to test it. The entire thing didn't sit right with her. And she wanted to get to the bottom of this. Just looking over the file, she couldn't understand why this was the police's initial theory. Like she's looking over the file, the two men robbing the place. And she was like, "Uh, I don't know. So criminalist cold case worker Jennifer Francis, who, who we've been talking about, she tracked down and found this swab in the coroner's freezer leave it to a woman to find something that's been lost for 18 years am I right so she finds it she found this the sample it was not on file with the coroner's office but it also wasn't on the record sheet of being signed out with the other evidence the evidence that had all gone missing so Jennifer she had the coroner's freezer searched item by item and they found it The evidence bag it was in, it did have some water damage, but the sample inside the vial, it was preserved. So it was in like a brown envelope, I believe. It got water damage from the freezer and the vial was kind of protruding out out the side of it. Um, But the vial itself was still sealed and everything inside was still good. The outside of the vial said Rasmussen which apparently it was supposed to say a case number. So not sure what happened during the processing of this vial, but at least it was still there and in good condition. 
When they tested the DNA sample, it came back as a woman's DNA. And this totally blew the two men robbers theory clean out of the water. They ran the sample through CODIS, but no match came up. And guess what? Since there were zero female suspects recorded in the files, she had nobody questioned. She had no leads. Nowhere in there was Sherry's father's statement he made about Sherry telling him John's lady cop ex-girlfriend was uh, stalking Sherry before she was murdered and coming by her office and causing a scene and coming around her home and Sherry was concerned. None of that. Nowhere was that on record. Nobody had Sherry's father's uh, statement of, of that. Had that file been seen by Jennifer, this case would not have went back on the shelf for four years which it did so four years later it's now 2009 sherry's case resurfaces this time in the hands of detective jim natal and he flips it open and he is like what the hell is going on in this folder the progress report states female dna has been recovered from the bite mark but the original detectives on the case in 1986 they're saying this was two men who committed who committed the murder so he starts investigating because he's like "Mm, the first theory seems to be wrong with the new evidence that that they that they have so first he goes to his boss detective robert bub and he's like hey bub hey bubsy check this out and robert bub is like whoa okay Okay, you got something here. So then Detective Robert Bubb, he puts two other detectives on the case. Detective Mark Martinez and Detective Pete Barbara. Now it's gaining momentum because they start looking at this thinking, oh no, this was definitely not a two-man break-in turned bad. This was intentional. Sherry didn't catch someone in her home. Someone broke in with the sole purpose of surprising and attacking her. Just by looking at the crime scene images, they can tell this was no two-man robbery, okay? He can tell by the blood smears on the electronics because there was like a blood smear and then an electronic stacked on top of that, which means it couldn't have been two burglars caught in the act stealing those electronics because then that, that blood mark would have been on the very top of the electronic that was stealing stacked on top of the one that had the blood on it you know what I mean this was this was a very this was looking very odd to him this didn't make sense for the theory also the struggle in the home it was clear that it would have taken a long time like this struggle went on for a while this was a very long fight for her life and it was very hectic and the detectives are thinking if this was two men it wouldn't have taken this long. Like two men could have overpowered Sherry without all of that struggle lasting that long. So they're like, no, 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 no. Sherry, she was caught off guard. Someone who broke in without using forced entry and whoever did it was only after one thing, to murder Sherry. The first shots were fired at her in her bedroom, which hit the glass doors, shattering the glass. And that glass spilled onto the driveway where John saw it when he arrived home. That's when Sherry ran for the panic button downstairs, the button that had her blood beside it, but she was never able to hit it. They believe the bite mark on Sherry's arm was when she managed to knock the gun out of the attacker's hand and got her attacker into a headlock, and then the attacker bit her to get out of it. Once the attacker was out of the headlock, they theorized that the attacker then hit Sherry over the head with that very heavy vase 
that was found shattered by her body. Uh, then they believe the attacker got the gun back and shot Sherry three times. The first shot went straight through her chest, and then the other two shots were fired uh, through a blanket to try to silence it. So they found that blanket that had been shot through. And those two shots, the last two shots that were fired into her chest, that was very much overkill because the first shot, all on its own, that was fatal. This tells me, personally, this tells me whoever did this was making sure they saw this murder through, like 100% murdered. Uh, and also had a lot of hate. That's a lot of hate. Uh, the fact Sherry was found face up, that indicates to me the attacker had zero regret or remorse, aka a cold-blooded killer. Although every file had been removed in which stated concern about John's lady cop ex-girlfriend there was still that note from 1987 about john verifying via phone call that stephanie lazarus was his police officer ex-girlfriend detective mark and pete they go ask john and john is like you guys know all this already that's who sherry's dad really thinks did it and they were confused because they were like mm, there's nothing in this file that said that because there was nothing in their files that said that except that one small note that led them to john to ask him about this so thank goodness that that note was there sherry's father's reports were not anywhere to be found ever never again uh you can see where where this is going i'm sure when the detectives call sherry's father now he cannot understand why he has to tell them this again and again and again it's been years and years and years and he's told them this over and over and over again he has fought so hard so he's baffled when he gets this call from detectives uh, asking him about this he's like you've heard this from me time and time again like why am I telling you this again but this is the first time these detectives are hearing about it the original detective back in 1986 detective Mayer, he had retired okay so he was retired now he retired a while ago so he had he had nothing to do with this case anymore so shit was gonna get solved, finally. A new theory is emerging, and that is that Stephanie Lazarus went to Sherry's home that day while off-duty, broke in through the garage, murdered Sherry, and staged that break-in gone wrong. They look into Stephanie, who is now a detective in the art theft division. And what do you know? After Sherry's murder, that same year, Stephanie had reported her gun that shoots 38 caliber bullets stolen she reports that gun stolen just weeks after sherry was murdered with a 38 caliber with 38 caliber bullets and she made that report like i said just a few weeks after sherry was murdered and yet nobody on the police force thought that was odd I do not buy that for a second. Eventually, an investigation is launched, not just on Stephanie, but with internal affairs, because there is reason to believe there is a cover-up happening, and they want to know who tampered with all this evidence and just straight up ignored blatantly clear evidence pointing at Stephanie. Detectives, they had to keep this really quiet because the, they were research. They were looking into Stephanie for months, okay? They spent months looking into her and they had to keep this super quiet because she worked 
she because she was a detective she worked among them they couldn't even write her name in their reports they had to use a code name because she could potentially find those files and catch on that they were onto her or perhaps there were still dirty cops lurking among them trying to protect Stephanie they don't know they don't know who's in on this what they needed now was a DNA sample from Stephanie they didn't want to just ask her about it because again they don't want her to know anything they don't even want her to know that they're looking at her unbeknownst to Stephanie detectives followed her so she's a detective and she's being followed by detectives and she had no idea she was being followed. I mean, is she really a good detective? I don't know. But unbeknownst to her, she was followed by detectives. And one day they got lucky outside of Costco as she threw out a cup that she had drank out of. She threw this cup in the garbage. And as soon as she walked away, police were there to collect it. Gotcha now, Stephanie, because her DNA matched. The DNA found on the bite mark left on Sherry's arm from the day she was murdered, matched Stephanie's DNA. That's what I'm talking about. That's how you bust a bitch using the bite mark evidence, okay? That's how you bust them. June 5th, 2009, Stephanie Lazarus went to work like she always did. She sat at her desk working in the art theft division. And it, you know, a lot of people did say that she was good at her job. I will say they said that she had a perfect record, like she had never been in any serious trouble. She kind of had like this like shiny reputation, I guess, at work. Like she was known to be a, a really good worker there. So I'm not really sure. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, there is kind of, I think it was brought up in the trial that, um, Perhaps maybe that DNA evidence was tampered with or maybe somebody was like setting her up. I don't know if it came up in trial, but there was a theory that like, well, I mean, maybe someone was trying to set her up for this murder. Is it possible that someone could have stolen all the files with her description on it to make it look like she did it? Is it possible that that DNA swab that was lost in that freezer for 18 years was replaced with a swab of her? DNA is that possible I mean it that swab was technically lost meaning it wasn't in like a locked box so I don't know this is yeah I don't know but anyways this isn't how the courts see it anyways we'll get to that so June 5th 2009 she goes to work detective uh Dan Jaramillo I might be pronouncing that wrong Jaramillo we'll call him Jaramillo he comes to her and he says hey Stephanie I got a guy we arrested we've arrested this guy and he says he knows about some art theft you're looking into and she was like oh okay yeah I definitely want to talk to this guy I'll come talk to him now there was no guy. This was just a way to get her into the interrogation room without her, her weapon because it's protocol for them to remove their gun before entering this room. And she was let in not knowing what was about to happen. Like she was blindsided by this. She gets into the room with two detectives and probably almost immediately she realizes it's the thing she has been fearing for 20 years. It, you know, it's finally happening. She's asking, where's the guy? Where's this guy who knows stuff about some art theft I'm working on? And detectives, they don't even, they don't even flinch at her question. They don't even answer that. Um, they tell her they wanted to ask her something privately. I'm sure her gut was in her butt when they said that. That would just be, wow, that would, whew. They start off by asking her if she knows John Rutten. 
And she says she does. She says they went to college together and she kind of does like a brief uh, – gives them like a brief rundown of their history. Uh, then they ask her if uh, she knew his wife. And she's like, um, I don't know. And I'm not going to break down the entire interview because it was very long. But essentially she says she doesn't know um, a lot of things. She just says I don't know to, to mostly everything. I'm pretty sure there was a podcaster. His podcast is called True Crime Loser. And I'm pretty sure he reviews this interrogation. And she starts talking about pictures at one point. And he really goes into this, but he does, he, he's hilarious. If you've never heard of True Crime Loser, I don't think he's podcasting anymore. So his episodes, they're limited. Um, but you can still find him on Spotify, I believe. And he reviews this interrogation. And when he's kind of like mimicking, he's, I guess he's kind of like being um, Stephanie, her talking about these pictures. She talks about these pictures for a while. And he's like, yeah, I got these pictures. Look at all these pictures. I take a lot of pictures. So <laughs> uh, not really sure what happened there, but he thought that was hilarious. And he put that in one of his episodes. So anyways, she likes to take pictures. Uh, this interrogation, this it's online and I linked it in my show notes. It is awkward. Uh, she is stuttering and tripping over her words. She's like, what? Uh, I, um, uh, I, uh, I don't remember. Uh, that was so long ago. It's a lot of that. It is a lot, a lot of that. And she also keeps saying, why are you asking me these questions? What does this have to do with me? Why are you asking this? And she's like, you don't think I would have. Uh, and she kind of avoids saying the word like murdered sherry or killed sherry you know she kind of avoids saying those things um probably because she's avoided saying it for the last 20 years so it's in her mind it's like that's something you don't say anyways for a detective uh she really bombs this she's a detective okay she knows these interrogation techniques and I guess it's different when you're on the other side. But um, yeah, she bombed it. She has no idea it's being recorded. And at one point she says, I wish I would have recorded this. And I'm sure the detectives are thinking like, no worries, love. We got it. We got it for you. Stephanie leaves the interrogation as if she thinks she's free. So apparently she just like got up and, and left. Uh, <laughs> but she didn't make it very far. I think she got down the hallway, maybe a few steps out of the door, and she was arrested for the murder of Sherry Rasmussen, uh, first-degree murder. As she was read her Miranda rights, she is just pleading that this is crazy and this is absolutely insane, this is crazy, this is insane. Nels Rasmussen, Sherry's father, and his family – finally get the news they have been pushing to hear for 23 years. Detectives show up at their home and they inform them Stephanie Lazarus has been arrested and charged with the first degree murder of their daughter. Something Nels knew from day fucking one. Finally, justice would be served and Nels would be sure to be in court to testify, which he did. Loretta Rasmussen, Sherry's mother, gave the detective that delivered the news a hug which it was a bit surprising to the detective because he was anticipating perhaps anger that the woman they knew did this had not been arrested the, the day of the murder 23 years ago when all signs pointed to her this baffled the detectives working on the case too you know they were thinking what the hell happened here but the family they had no hate on this day only peace that they had finally been heard 
It would be another three years before the trial began, though. Since Stephanie's bail was set at $10 million, $10 million, yeah, she had no choice but to remain in custody until the trial started. I think, and I do believe, I think that is the highest bail uh, I've ever heard. $10 million. Who could pay that? In 2012, at trial, the now 51-year-old Stephanie Lazarus, she admitted no guilt and denied everything. And I don't even think she spoke at the trial. She didn't even testify. The now 53-year-old John Rutten, he was brought in to testify and he was essentially grilled on the stand. And he cried and he admitted to having sex with Stephanie while he and Sherry were engaged that one time and after Sherry's death three years later in Hawaii. And... This did not make him look good to the jury, but John Rutten, he was never connected to the murder of Sherry. There was no evidence ever pointing at he had anything to do with this or that he even knew what had happened. It was a wild trial. A wild trial. A wild trial. (laughs) It was a wild trial. And with everything involved, it made for a media frenzy. I mean, just look at that. A cop accused of killing her ex-boyfriend's wife 23 years ago because she was obsessed with him. And allegations that the LAPD, uh, the detectives and police working on this case, may have not only looked the other way, but also tampered with evidence to save one of their own from being caught. That is salacious. That's... Police corruption is always uh, always a media favorite. There was just so many elements in this case. It was it was just going to be highly publicized. It was there was it never had a chance to be kept quiet. By the end of it all, the jury saw Stephanie as a scorned, jealous ex that brutally murdered the wife of the man she was obsessed with. And Stephanie was charged with first-degree murder and sentenced to 27 years in prison. She will be eligible for parole at the end of 2034. Had Stephanie been caught at the time of the murder, she would have probably served her time and been out by the time she was actually sentenced. (laughs) So maybe in a parallel universe, she was getting out of prison and then in this universe, she was just going in. I wonder if she's ever thought about that. Uh, Nels and Loretta Rasmussen, they filed a lawsuit against the LAPD, the city, and Stephanie Lazarus in 2010, but this yielded no positive results, and to me, I really felt like the courts used some kind of fuckery to get out of this. I don't know. It seemed really sus to me, and it actually made me angry reading about it because the city was like, oh no, you actually don't have a case because of statute of limitations, and you would have had to file this in 1998. Sorry, bye. Uh, that just blew my mind just I mean think about that just think about that it just makes me so fucking angry because if they had filed in 1998 the case it just would have been tossed out because Stephanie hadn't been arrested or charged with the murder yet there was no evidence all the evidence had been they're literally suing because evidence had gone missing and it halted this you know what I mean and they're like oh actually well and it's like well ah it hurts my brain it hurts my brain and it pisses me off so I can feel a bit of the frustration Nels would have felt and I gotta tell you the unjust here it really stings and I just I really can't imagine the level he's feeling this at Nels and Loretta 
they weren't the only ones to file a lawsuit. The criminalist Jennifer Francis, who tracked down the bite mark DNA taken from Sherry's wound that was lost in that freezer for 18 years and led to the arrest of Stephanie Lazarus, she also filed one in 2013 against the city because she felt other detectives were purposefully steering her in the wrong direction. And it wasn't the first time something like this had happened to her. There had been other cases where she had felt pressured to kind of not look at something there had been another case where she wanted to test dna evidence and she wanted to match it to a known serial killer and she was told quote we're not opening that can of worms unquote what the fuck is that kind of response it's literally the police's job to find out who murdered someone and bring their family that knowledge. Even if the serial killer is in jail, even if they have been executed, the families still deserve to know. Uh, to think there are families out there that don't know who murdered their mother, daughter, wife, brother, husband, whoever, because the LAPD didn't want to open that can of worms. It's disturbing. It's very fucking disturbing. Jennifer's lawsuit also talks about being treated unfairly because she was trying to do her job properly and also mentions, uh, and there's also a mention of sexual harassment. So this just keeps getting worse and worse. This, the LAPD is not looking, not looking good. As for the internal affairs investigation, I never, I never heard anything else about that. I don't know what results they have. Is it still ongoing? Possibly. I have one question for the LAPD. What the fuck are you doing? In an article titled In Plain Sight by Stephen McEwlin, Nell says this, quote, It's so evident if this wasn't a cover-up, what was it? Unquote. That wraps up this week's episode, and holy moly was that, um... That was a wild one. That one was making my blood boil at the end there. This one, it just makes me feel so angry for so many reasons. I, I am really happy that Stephanie was caught even after it was clearly not handled correctly. But I want to know more about what's happening with that internal affairs investigation because I feel like that would uncover a lot. So it's time to clean house in the LAPD, I think. I guess, well, shit. I guess 23 years ago was time, but maybe, you know, it's still happening though, clearly. Um, still happening up until, you know, 2010, 2013, 2014, who knows. It only takes a few bits of rust to sink a ship. Think about that, LAPD. I can't help but sit here and think about, so I've read a lot, I've read a lot about this case. I wrote a lot about this case. I looked at a lot of stuff about this case. And I just can't help but wonder if anyone would have any reason at all to frame Stephanie Lazarus for this. Because by all accounts, everybody said she was such a good detective. She did really good work. And I'm just playing devil's advocate here. What if she was on to something? What if she knew something was happening and she was about to be a whistleblower? And then they were like, hey, I know what we can do. We'll steal all these files. No, because I guess they would have had to start doing that at the time of the the murder. They would have had to start setting her up like 20-something years ago. I don't know. It's something to talk about. Is it 
possible? Maybe. Is it probable? I mean, most likely not, but it's just a theory that's worth discussing really. And because I don't know people around her personally, I don't know what her relationships are like with people she works with or whatever. I have no idea if somebody could have potentially been setting her up for 20 something years. I mean, I don't think so. That would be the craziest long setup I've ever seen maybe they started doing it as like an insurance policy maybe like "Mm, okay you're linked to this I'm gonna start doing this in case one day I need to pull some dirt on you or something I don't know anyways that's done that's over she's she was found guilty by the courts there was there was the evidence the bite mark evidence there was evidence that she was obsessed and then her interview I mean I feel like if you watch her interrogation you're gonna be like yeah she's guilty so head on over to hell no a true crime podcast on instagram if you want to follow me there i am collecting stories early for this year's halloween special so please please write into me about any stories and maybe they will be selected to be read on the podcast these stories can be creative writing spooky stories they don't have to be true they can be something you've come up with it can be uh true stories of the paranormal or Maybe you have a scary story about a near miss. Please send those to hellnopodcast at outlook.com. All one word at hellnopodcast at outlook.com. Please don't forget to rate five stars, share the podcast, follow, whatever you can do to help me grow. It really helps me and it's it's a completely free way to support the podcast. Uh, Also, oh, this is exciting. Hell No is on TikTok now. Um, Let me just look up my TikTok name. I think it's Hell No a true crime podcast. Yes, my TikTok username is hell no underscore a true crime podcast. So just like the Instagram name. Yep, just like the Instagram name. And I'm doing this thing now where I'm going to try to post brief summaries of the cases. So the last one I did, it's two parts. It's like a minute and a half um, each part. And it's like a brief overview of this case. It doesn't have the ending, though. For that, you have to come listen to the episode. So please follow me on TikTok as well as Instagram, and feel free to write me any stories um, to be featured on this year's Halloween special because you know I'm already planning that. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Bye.